everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. I'm Astra. I'm Fel. And I'm Honey. And this week, we are going to talk about ghosts. Woo! Oh, come on. I can't be the only person who does that. Woo! <laughs> all right. All right. I'm a child at heart. It's fine. Before we get into our topic today, we're going to go ahead and do our what happened on this day. Currently, October 18th. And I'm going to pass it over to Fel. All right, T. Here I go. In 1955, a new atomic subparticle called a negative proton antiproton was discovered at UC Berkeley. The hunt for antimatter began in earnest in 1932 with the discovery of the positron, a particle with the mass of an electron and a positive charge. However, creating an antiproton will be far more difficult since it needs nearly 2,000 times the energy. In 1955, the most powerful atom smasher in the world, the Bevatron built at Berkeley, could provide the required energy. Detection was accomplished with a maze of magnets, electronic counters, through which only anti-protons could pass. After several hours of bombarding copper with protons, accelerated to 6.2 billion electron volts of energy. The scientists counted a total of 60 anti-protons. I almost found something to talk about, like antimatter and dark matter for this episode, but I thought we might be getting a little too far down the rabbit hole. We'll keep it a little less intense. So the first question, I guess, is what is a ghost? Do we have a definition? Full disclosure, I actually asked around for this because I feel like everybody's definition of a ghost differs. So the dictionary definition is just like, oh, an apparition of a dead person which is believed to appear or come manifest the living. Typically is a nebulous image. But it seems like everybody has different definitions. Some people think that ghost has to be human, so like a dead person. Some people think animals can have ghosts. Some people think that ghosts are representations of particular experiences that somebody had on Earth uh, before they died. Some people think that there is a, it's actually like the soul of the person. It seems to vary quite a lot, but I think the commonality is that it is an image or a representation of usually a human or something related to a human and usually somebody who has, who has died. Would you agree with that? So I was looking around <laughs> some parapsychology people to see if they had any defi- any definitions for ghosts. And I ran across someone named Hans Holzer, who is a professor of parapsychology and an author of many books on the subject. He said that, and I quote, ghosts are similar to psychotic human beings, incapable of reasoning for themselves. Spirits, on the other hand, are their surviving personalities of all who pass through the door of death in a relatively normal fashion. So when I read that, at first I was like, okay, what does relatively normal fashion mean? Because it's very vague terminology. He essentially believed that ghosts were often tied to a place of a tragic accident, attempting to take care of quote-unquote unfinished business and might actually be unaware that they're actually dead. This is something I think we'll touch on maybe a bit later, but he also mentions how most paranormal sightings aren't really true ghosts, but rather residential energy when an emotional event is replayed over and over at at the same place at the same time. And again, he differentiates ghosts from spirit, which I think is interesting because that's something that I think a lot of people have their own opinions on, whether spirits and ghosts are the same thing or different. But according to Halzer, he thinks they're different and says that spirits differ and that they are not tied to one place. And he calls them discarnate entities, meaning that they are the soul that has survived when a person has died and has no physical body in which to reside. And so then because they're not tied to any specific location, they can move about dimensions at will, but can be called back by a genuine or emotional tie to an individual. The big issue that I have with Halzer's definition of a spirit is that it doesn't take into account anything like land spirits or plant spirits or really animal spirits to an extent. It seems like his definition is very focused on humans specifically, especially with the whole like a spirit isn't tied to any particular place when we know that most land spirits are tied to a particular place. And I also thought the comments about when they come back they come back to someone they have like a genuine connection to. There are reports from mediums who receive communication like with spirits that they have no connection with, right? And so I don't know how much that holds true either, but that was kind of the most obvious distinction that I found. Curious if anybody else found something. Ghosts and spirits. I mean, there's just so many. Like you could honestly make an entire podcast dedicated to just one culture's version of ghosts 
for example, I found 27 in Japan that had enough literature about them to warrant whole Wikipedia pages for each of those 27. That doesn't even count others, <laughs> other kinds of ghosts. There was 11 for Romania. I don't know anything about Romanian folk belief, but the fact that they had 11 very in-depth discussions of ghosts was surprising ancient greece had around 13 and i that's condensing a lot of them i honestly think it's really really hard to separate ghosts but historically and this is like a really grand generalization but i find that a lot of cultures make the distinction between idolins or phasma like so your general like visual appearance of a ghost that like you don't really interact with so that would be like patroclus's ghost in the Iliad, in which it's like a, a phantom, essentially, of just like an image and impression of a ghost. Then there's the restless spirits. Restless spirits are often ones that have died violently or died without certain burial rites, and it, sometimes they're split up, sometimes they're together. There's the concept of the hungry ghost, seen in like Chinese Buddhism, Japanese Buddhism, Vietnamese Buddhism, Vietnamese traditional religion, like a lot of cultures have this. I believe it's also seen in some Taoism as well. These ghosts are often ones that are very animalistic, aka hungry, in which they're driven by intense emotions, and they're usually placated by food. I would not necessarily put hungry ghosts and restless ghosts in the same category. I think hungry ghosts in a lot of ways are like ghosts that have been warped by emotions and i think there's so ghosts warped by emotions i think are another category as well that we see in folk belief oh another one would be female ghosts female ghosts are their own beasts they're seen just cross-culturally a lot of female spirits like over half of the ancient greek ones i found like of the ghosts i found were various creatures like gallo and mormo who are specifically like demons they're often equated to lilith in terms of their functionality Oftentimes they're like baby eaters, cause miscarriages, possess women. They're also like they're often considered ghosts, but I would say that they would more fall in lines with spirit. But again, the line is kind of blurred. And I think it especially gets difficult when we're using English to describe these things because we don't really have a lot of descriptors besides ghosts and spirit. I don't know if you guys can think of any other traditional categories for ghosts. I think there are also beings like fey beings, which are sometimes contrasted with the human dead. So you can kind of run the gamut from like ghost, spirit, and then also beings overlap. I saw in your definition that you also mentioned Strix as a type of ghost. Uh, so a Strix is like a like a an owl-like female being, and then um, they drink blood. And later on, they were also contrasted with, so this is later in kind of the witch panic, they were also considered to be related to witches because of, I think it was the Golden Ass, there was a, a play that characterized a Strix as transforming using an ointment. There's like, witches are associated with ghosts because of the blood drinking and the ointment. They are associated with ghosts. There's kind of lots and lots of mythological beings, which I think cross over, and it's quite difficult to draw the distinction. Oh, and I would say there, there'd also be vengeful ghosts. Vengeful ghosts might also be their own category. Ghosts that are seeking vengeance, like whether that's seen in like, you know, Shakespeare's Hamlet with the ghost of his father or seen in Macbeth to a degree, I guess, or vengeful spirit, like the Furies of seeking out someone who has done a wrong, usually murderer, and just kind of like driving everyone in involved insane. <laughs> See, that's another very common type of traditional spirit. That could be tied into restless spirit too, though, right? Like if, if, we, if we're categorizing restless to mean violent or serving some kind of justice, right, that wasn't apparent in the event that occurred. Those could go hand in hand. Before you do that, mm -hmm. uh, do you believe in ghosts? All right, which one of us is going? Who's throwing this all under the bus? <laughs> I don't personally, which is weird because I do believe in spirits, but I kind of consider them the same thing. And like when we talk about ghosts as like restless spirits or the spirits of something who had something really tragic happen and they're just still around to like haunt, whatever. I don't know if I buy into that, but I do believe in like spirits. My answer is yes, asterisk. <laughs> so um i i do believe in i'm trying to figure out how to describe how i believe in ghosts without using like woo-woo language <laughs> i don't know in some ways i think 
that people's belief in go in certain types of like spirits kind of em- empowers them in some ways there's like a lot of famous ghosts my, at my college there was the lady a lady in white which is a very common ghost trope I was a lady in white and in some ways I almost think that people's belief in her powered the spirit in a way and almost more like a, an egregore kind of kind of way and I think perhaps there was some sort of spirit that was there that kind of attached itself yeah like i i am believe more in like impressions like there's actually a whole uh, subcategory of modern ghosts modern parapsychology of impressions and i definitely believe more in that like because i generally tend to believe in reincarnation which means that i don't necessarily believe in like conscious ghosts like i don't believe that in interactive personalities which is another parapsychology term i don't believe that there are like the ghost of my great grandmother that I can see and talk to, right? I kind of believe that her soul has been recycled in in whatever way. But I do believe that there's like a memory of her. The impression that she made in the world is accessible. My belief in ghosts is very like complicated, but I don't really, I don't believe in like ghosts that can like harm you or like knock things off of your wall. I don't really believe in that it's more of like impressions and almost like memories i guess now what about you henny i want to say that i logically do not believe in ghosts but emotionally i i I do does that make sense like i'm kind of with astra that i believe in spirits and i can also say that i've had some supernatural experiences myself which lead me to believe that there might be something a lot of it is like built up in like my own personal experience and i find it really hard to rationalize and narrow down like okay, yes, a ghost definitely fits this definition. And this is what I believe in. Like, it is kind of ironic how they're sort of ineffable <laughs> and they're, they're, so, they're, they're um, it's hard to characterize that it's hard for me to say what I do and don't believe in. I think I'm with you though, that I don't think that everybody produces a ghost. And I don't think that it's something that you can necessarily measure, but I think we'll probably get into that a little bit later. So we cannot talk about ghosts without talking about our favorite individuals, the spiritualists. I won't go super in-depth on them. We have a whole episode. It's episode 18, Psychics and the Paranormal, where I go really, really in-depth on the spiritualists. But spiritualism, and I made this hot take in that episode, that ghost hunters are just modern-day spiritualists in a lot of ways. So spiritualists, I would say, I would credit them with a lot of our modern ghost lore, especially as it relates to parapsychology. I mean, the Society for Psychical Research was a big club for parapsychology specifically in which they would like design spiritual, like they would design psychic tests, essentially not psychic tests, but like tests for clairvoyance, for example. The spiritualists are are also where we get like orbs from and like all of that sort of photography which led into videography kind of stuff so spiritualists are i would say a, a large portion of them are cons <laughs> they're just uh, they, they were very about performative right so they would kind of perform hauntings of houses they would perform exorcisms and channeling and really crafted a lot of modern terminology about ghosts and spirits i actually found a spiritualist book on like how to talk to the dead in a used bookstore and it was very hard to read but like very just like that dense victorian terminology and i was like i barely any idea what you're saying but a lot of them started to come up with different types of ghosts so then they could like signal to people and be like oh well that's why you didn't detect this ghost in this way because it's not actually that ghost it's like a funnel ghost Again, a lot of abuse of photography and early scientific tools to further this idea of this existence of an interactive type of afterlife. I try to think of another word besides ghost, but we don't really have one in the English language. Interactive spirits, I would say. It's a very brief review of the spiritualists. They just kind of traveled around the world and very much like ghost hunters, except like they were the ones who were creating these. Well, I guess one could argue that ghost hunters are doing that too. <laughs> I suppose. So I would say they, they lead pretty quickly into modern modern day ghost hunters and ghost lore. And what I find fascinating about parapsychology is how much it overlaps with the greater occult community. So it interacts very deeply with the New Age movement, right? I mean, especially since spiritualism heavily influenced the New Age, it makes sense 
that they mesh. And it's funny because not all parapsychologists are occultists and definitely not all occultists are into parapsychology, but I find that definitions tend to bleed into each other in a really interesting way. It's the terminology, right? Like they use a lot of the same terminology to describe things and they mean them in slightly different ways but with like the same general I think underlying understanding which makes it really fascinating yeah we'll get into some of that for sure right like the shadow people right shadow people is a term that is used I've seen it used by like witchy people and I'm like that's bizarre because it's very it's like a very like huge thing in the paranormal community looks like one of the first times specific phrase like shadow person was used seems to be 2001 (laughs) do find it almost like the so the parapsychologists and the paranormal community have a weirdly quote-unquote scientific approach to the paranormal whereas like the occult community generally has a more spiritual approach to the paranormal so it's very funny to me that there's like a lot like i've seen occult people talking about orbs before which is just bizarre to me I was looking up the Google trends for the term shadow people to see if there had been any kind of weird spike like we saw with like shadow work. But no, it's been pretty constant over the last like 10 years. So there are so many different types of ghosts. I'll cover a few of them. And I'm not going to read all these definitions. One of the main ones that you come across is poltergeist. Everyone loves to talk about poltergeist. I am not actually super well versed in poltergeist lore obviously it is a german (laughs) term poltergeists are kind of like the classic example like a trickster spirit quote unquote where they will throw pans around to my knowledge they're not necessarily those who have died that they're more like spirits than ghosts although poltergeist does mean like loud ghost or loud spirit i'm trying to see if i can find the beginning of poltergeist and it looks like the spiritualist (laughs) looks like the spiritualist there's poltergeist which are like the loud annoying ghosts that like throw things around this uh, this website had a very weird description of them it said the destructive activities of a poltergeist usually occur only the presence of a particularly living person often a teenage girl who is then suspected of having caused the damages herself Bizarre description. This is so widespread. Like, I don't know why. I was hoping you'd bring this up. But I've heard this over and over again that if you have somebody with ovaries who's going through puberty in your house, you might have a poltergeist. And I think it's this idea of, like, psychic disturbance from, like, emotional disturbance. I guess there is this, like, proposed link between, like, ghosts being, like, a very emotional experience. And I think we'll get into later, like, what the proposed kind of spiritual reason for that is. But yeah, I think it's nonsense, personally. Also, I think it's like a very modern definition because I asked my boyfriend who is not really into the occult at all. I was like, what do you think a poltergeist is? And he was like, oh, that's like when someone dies in a house and they're not happy that you're you're like in their house. So you've that uh, they're just like making trouble for you because they're they want the house. So I, d- I don't know where this like specific thing about like ovaries comes from, but it is it is weird, man. Uh, it's it's also strange. So I was reading, I think it was Restless Dead by Sarah. I always pronounce her middle name, her middle, it's like Isles, Eels, Johnston. So she wrote a book, Restless Dead, it's about ghosts in ancient Greece. And she's like a classicist, a scholar. And she actually said that there is a weird connection that is made between Hecate and teenage girls because Hecate is a goddess of transitions from life to death and between becoming a mother. She's also like a child rearing goddess and then also from maidenhood into womanhood and so there's actually a weird link that's as far back as ancient greece in which hecate becomes associated with teenage girls which then associates restless ghosts with teenage girls which i find quite bizarre i would like to see i would love to like track that specific it's like a timeline right yeah. like how we got from point a to point b I noticed that same book, um, I didn't read the whole thing, but um, I was skimming through and there's also links to fertility. So mm. it seems like there are, yeah, lots and lots of kind of connections to female female organs or um, right, and like in general. A Mormo, um, Gello and Strix who are all like, and like Lilith and like all of mm-hmm. these. And this is seen across cultures too like there's like jinn that are specifically associated harassing and haunting i think i think a lot of it goes to fertility like fears around not being able to 
reproduce and have, which is a huge concern in the ancient world for like much of human history. So I think there there is something to be said there. Then moving on, there are interactive personalities. So interactive personalities are exactly what they sound like. They are ghosts that you can interact with. And specifically, a lot of them pointed out that they can make noise, they can reveal themselves fully visually, and they can touch you. I found the touching very interesting because a lot of historical literature is really back and forth on if ghosts can touch you or if they're incorporeal. I think that's the same with modern literature, too. One website said that an interactive ghost is a ghost's final form. And I was like, what does that mean? Why are they evolving? <laughs> it's like Dragon Ball Z. Like... <laughs> they just collect enough souls and or like drink enough blood and then they, they enter their final form. Then there are uh, mental imprint or energies, which are kind of what I was talking about a little bit, like memories or quote unquote energies left over usually from some sort of tragedy or like highly emotional event, highly charged event, often same national tragedies or war, anything that generates like a lot of violence or a lot of heavy emotions. One of the things with residual memory is like they tend to like repeat the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. This is like reported all the time at battlefields, like all yeah, the time. Battlefields. Gettysburg is like the big one in the States, right? You go to Gettysburg and people are like, I just, I feel the energy is like super intense. Or, oh, I have a Gettysburg story for oh, later. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> not to be, not to be too like European here, but like <laughs> lots of people have died in, in places like, you know, it's not uncommon to walk across like a really old graveyard or like a plague pit or you know a, a battlefield so I just find it really funny that people are like oh this place specifically is associated with ghosts because xyz because people die everywhere all the time and it's you know and often in very emotionally charged ways and I just find it really interesting that there's this like modern idea of it when maybe that's not necessarily accurate to the to the location but anyway I should have got such I mean ancient Greece too believed that like battlefields specific like they had that same idea where specifically ghost hauntings would happen at either midnight or midday so this idea of being haunted by ghosts at like noon is very amusing to me and it was usually poor farmers like farmers would just like stumble across battlefields and ghosts would just be constantly like re-attacking each other so that that idea is fairly old like even as old as like the Iliad itself this idea of battlefields specifically being sites of ghosts that makes sense, right? If we think about it like in an, as an emotionally charged right. time. I mean, we're talking about mass casualties with people who were on an emotional high in many ways, um, whether it be in terms of, I don't know, who's happy to fight, <laughs> but that could have been part of it, or it's sad being there and not being able to say goodbye to their family. Like, it would be an emotionally charged moment, I think, which is maybe why that holds some substance in like modern day. This one's very interesting. Time slips find that time sets are an interesting phenomenon in which a living person suddenly finds her or himself like that they didn't just go with themselves but you know whatever <laughs> or oneself in the company of ghostly shapes from a bygone era and i was <laughs> the immediate image that jumped in my head was anastasia <laughs> with like once upon a december she's the yeah. where they're like yeah <laughs> so that wouldn't really be a bygone era for her not really and i was like how what I was like, is this, like, Christmas Carol? <laughs> like, that was strange to me. I'd kind of heard of that idea in, like, fiction before, but I'd never actually, like, heard of it. Like, I guess I kind of had, but not really. And especially living in, like, a city very colonial, there are sometimes people, like, have reports of, like, oh, I walked into this room and suddenly there were the founding fathers and they all started doing like, <laughs> like, okay, sure, sure, whatever. Like, or that happens a lot in Salem, I think, too. But I think I, I, ha I don't know if that has any credence to it. But I feel like you could argue that's more of like a remote viewing type that's of situation, true, yeah. right? Like, it's probably based on something that you read or heard or even saw before and you're just like subconscious bringing it to the forefront in a way that you haven't ever experienced before. So it seems like something paranormal when it's really just your brain being dumb. Right. Orbs. Orbs are apparently ghosts. No website could tell me how. This one said is believed the orbs are the soul of a human or even animal that has died and is traveling around from one place to another. That's not really a definition of anything. 
is it like what we do in the shadows where they turn into a bat and fly away and then like land <laughs> it's like fully for like you know i i don't understand what that means like are the ghosts conscious enough that they're like i'm going to go over here because in most lore ghosts are generally bound to where they died or to where there's like a lot of memory of them or if a necromancer of some kind like binds them to an object but to my knowledge ghosts don't really have free reign like that i don't know i find the whole idea of orbs ridiculous <laughs> i was gonna say i found an explanation well i say an explanation I, f- I found someone's rationale for orbs and we'll kind of get into like this scientific idea behind ghosts but the idea is that ghosts are comprised of like a particular energy state so they just kind of get like compressed into like a sphere (laughs) so they can't they can't like maintain their human shape unless they have like the emotional energy from somebody else to make them into that human shape so that's why they appear as orbs i think the more rational explanation maybe is that things like ball lightning and you know like um, photographic anomalies often generate like orbs of light and then that is interpreted as a supernatural experience but i thought it was kind of amusing how these have been rationalized with quantum woo the refractive difference between like an air and a dust particle is enough to give you a little blob of light so let's just not even it's fine <laughs> i'm not irritated at all so the next one is funnel ghosts which i didn't know they had a name but i'm fairly familiar with this one this is the kind of ghost that's like a cold spot this is very 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 common at least in my part of appalachia the the new age community this was all over the place that like a cold spot was specifically where a ghost was someone said funnel ghosts are said to be loved ones or previous homeowners coming to visit their old stomping grounds i don't think that's from people i've talked to that doesn't seem to be correct so uh, also apparently these ghosts can sometimes take the shape of swirling funnel of light hence their name i included this one i wasn't originally going to include it but i found this one to find like across several different paranormal blogs and i was like okay so yeah it's like the cold spot kind of ghost which like that was like a huge thing when i was in high school it was like so basically my high school was an old steel warehouse, an old steel factory. Yeah, we had no windows. It was great. <laughs> so there were there was like a, a lot of tragedies that happened to this steel factory because it was a steel factory. So there were there were so many discussions about cold spots. But of course, no one ever thought about how you know maybe because it's an old steel factory that maybe there was something to do with the way the building was structured. <laughs> But that, that was, a, I find cold spots to actually be a very common topic among New Agers, at least, at least the ones that I grew up with. Well, it's also something that we see in literature, like in Harry Potter specifically, like the definition of a ghost, when you walk through, when you experience that cold sensation, like you see in fictional literature too, which say what you will about the, the creeds of that, I don't know. Then there's ectoplasm or ectomist, which I've heard that word used a lot. Like if you've ever watched any paranormal show, which they are a lot of fun, they'll talk about like, oh, do you see that ectoplasm? And I'm like, what the fuck are you on about? So ectoplasm is also apparently a type of ghost, but it seems to be more of what the ghost leaves behind like a slimy substance here's what this person said it was kind of weird ectoplasm these kinds of ghosts are seen when a medium is trying to manifest a ghost and then expels the substance from their body first of all gross once the medium expels this ectoplasm from their body the ghost will then place the gauze slime or cheesecloth over themselves to be seen by whoever is summoning them (laughs) i don't know what that means at all how does it i really don't understand Okay, first of all, how does a person throw up or like expel? Like, what, where is it coming from? Yeah. <laughs> I've got to say, I am absolutely desperate to culture this, whatever this is. Like, it, it, are they implying that it is like a tangible substance that you can, you know, you can touch, you can feel it? You can. That is so interesting because I feel like there are explanations like maybe slime molds which develop really quickly overnight or like yeah bacterial biofilms which could maybe explain this but this is crazy i didn't realize that there were people who believed that ghosts could manifest so physically it was so funny i just googled ectoplasm and it says ectoplasm was a term coined in 1894 by psychical researcher Charles Roche. I think we did actually mention Charles Roche in our Psychics and Paranormal episode, and I was like, ah, yes. Uh, That's so funny. Since the physical as evidence existence of ectoplasm was not accepted by science, and it has four citations. 
<laughs> right next to that one sentence. Okay, so when a psychic, when a, when a medium is in a trance state, this material is excreted as a gauze-like substance from orifices on the body, and spiritual entities are said to drape the substance over their non-physical form. Oh, okay. So it's almost like they're becoming like a puppet because I just read that a lot of these were exposed as hoaxes as like someone like having cheesecloth in their mouth and then spitting it out and then probably draped on strings. So I I don't know how that then makes the ghost physical. <laughs> Ask you your face right now. So funny. So then I guess it's like the ghost becomes like a puppet of itself, which allows it to take a physical shape. Doesn't make any sense, but I think I I kind of understand. I, I don't even, I'm like speechless. I react to that as like, what the hell? Like, what even is this? I see this one person like coughed up what looks like a weird cheesecloth doll's face. Yeah, these are all, that's from 1912. Pictures from like 1940. This one's from 1907. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. The the rise of the, or the second wave of the spiritualist movement. The rise of grifters in the spiritualist community. So I know yeah. it's funny that a lot of times ectoplasm seems to be like the stuff that ghosts leave behind, at least from my understanding of when I've watched paranormal shows, <laughs> like one in the morning. Then there are shadow people. Again, we talked about that a little bit earlier. It seems the term dates back to 2001-ish. So a shadow person is a type of ghost that just, they're just exactly what they sound like. A shadow, usually with no eyes or hair, and they just kind of stare. This is kind of funny because in uh, ancient Greek literature, ghosts are either described as being extremely pale and see-through, or they're explained as being shadows, like pure pitch night black. So that's interesting. I mean, I think the idea of a shadowy person is definitely seen throughout cultures. But it's interesting that, like, shadow people is, like, its own specific a subgroup like there's like a, a whole subculture of people on their like weird internet forums <laughs> it's like it's like its own little culture surrounding shadow people it's also quite common for people to, who take entheogenic drugs to see shadow people i yes. think it might be like yeah. something to do with that experience specifically that generates those kind of apparitions so i can kind of see how it's possibly quite universal for that reason yes we did talk about that in our entheogens episode you brought that up i remember and then the last thing we have on here is second sight or you had the death we had the pronunciation of this somewhere i think it's tyveshire i'm so sorry morag because i am absolutely massacring the scottish gaelic like this is a crime <laughs> from the english against the scottish once over and over again I think it's Tyveshire. Yeah, it's like the idea that not everyone can see ghosts, so some people are more sensitive to seeing them. They might also see omens of death, which is another common cross-cultural thing. What's interesting is the second sight is is like not seemingly recognized by the greater like parapsychology community. It's definitely acknowledged by like mediums and psychics. So it's funny again that overlap where there are certain things that are like commonly found in one but not in the other. I kind of wanted to get into a few of the sort of more I will say scientific explanations, but I don't think we can classify these necessarily as scientific. So some of these explanations come from the spiritualist movement, as we've already mentioned, and also theosophy. So this was kind of 19th century ideas where they were trying to meld their understanding of science with their understanding of the spiritual world. And they came up with some sort of wacky ideas about how those might manifest. So the first one is this um, new age idea of ghosts as being sort of high vibrational beings have you have you guys heard this before this is completely new to me i've heard of it before but i heard it in context with like high vibrational energy so it wasn't like thoroughly explained i've not heard it before but i'm not surprised so basically this idea is that so, they, so there was this understanding developing of sort of atomic theory during the 19th century and molecular bonding was emerging as an idea so there was this idea that perhaps in theosophy the matter might separate out to become uh, high vibrational. And this kind of echoes back to this idea of ether, which is like a platonic idea, ancient Greek idea about matter. Realistically, every atom has a vibrational frequency. So the idea of a high vibrational is just not physically possible. And the idea of some, some matter just like spontaneously splitting apart is something that you could definitely detect. So yeah, it's certainly an interesting concept. So it's just kind of going back to this idea of ether. What do you think is so funny about this? is that when spiritualists talk about like high vibrational energy when we're talking about like high and low vibrations which if you, if you didn't listen to our like vibrations and frequency episodes you should go do that because uh, we talk about the issues with that entire kind of terminology 
in terms of when they're talking about that, like low vibrations are bad, right? And like high vibrations are good. In terms of characteristics, high vibrations typically are associated with like a calm demeanor and like being enlightened and not having to deal with like negative emotions, like sadness and depression and whatever like that. But then in this, and so it's like a much more calm and kind of ethereal notion. But then in this case, they're like high vibrations, so chaotic that it causes things to like dissociate. I'm like, which one is it? Is it the first definition or is it the second definition? Because you have both at the same time. So I think that's why I'm kind of just like, you can't pick and choose which one goes with what at what time. It's insane. Anyways. Yeah, there also seems to be this idea that, um, again, it's this kind of emotional state thing, which you mentioned. So basically, your emotions will manifest in a, quote, astral current. And then those those will cause the constituent atoms to kind of split apart from their molecular bonds. So they'll just be individual atoms, and then they'll be vibrating so highly that they will then like manifest a ghost. But obviously, if you have something splitting apart into its constituent atoms, like, are you saying that it generates like a gas? Like, what what, what, what is going on there? Well, I'm like, like, <laughs> I'm thinking like, if we're talking about dissociating things, a lot of things together would have more vibrational frequencies, technically speaking, than something that is separated. Maybe the idea is more like if you separate it, then you have like a pure line of vibration where there's no like interference, right? And so it becomes higher. I don't know. That still seems really out there. And this whole like connection to astral, uh, no. What even? Okay, so (laughs) out out with the out with the high vibrational ghosts. um, We also have this idea of a low energy ghost. So this is like the opposite idea. So in essence, again, the ghost is assumed to have some tangible physical interaction with the world, and this is perceived as an energetic absence. So this idea of air growing cold when a ghost is near that Fel mentioned earlier is because ghosts are actually a lack of energy, so they just draw in the energy around them. And also this idea that kind of this modern spiritualists have that um, ghosts can interfere with electrical equipment. Well, that's because ghosts are low energy, so they're taking the energy away. It's not super compelling. Um, But this is basically the rationale for modern ghost hunters using um, electromagnetic field meters, thermometers, and barometers. We can take this a step further, and hardcore believers in ghosts use this rationalization to assert that ghosts are negative energy and therefore not measurable under normal circumstances. So the appearance only becomes possible when there's enough energy provided from the everyday world to allow them to kind of manifest. And this is, again, an explanation for why emotions would cause a ghost to manifest. Hang on, um, hang on. We should. I want you to read what you have in quotes here because it is so ridiculous. Quote, the appearance of ghosts only becomes possible when there's enough actual energy provided from the everyday world to allow some of these negative energy particles to be lifted into the positive energy domain. So I guess we're living in like the positive energy world over here. Um, ghosts are living in the, in the negative energy world, according to this. This is obviously nonsense. Astro, any comments? <laughs> um... <laughs> What a load of bullshit. Like, is that, is that a comment? The whole idea of, like, negative and positive energy is, first of all, ridiculous because, like, if we're talking about vibrations on an atomic level, an atom is composed of three subatomic particles, possibly more, but we won't get into that. The the uh, proton, neutron, and electron, right? One is negatively charged. One is positively charged. We can't just, like, separate them willy-nilly and have, like, a negative sphere and like a positive sphere that's not how this works it's it's the same issues i have this is such a tangent but like with salt lamps and this idea of like the salt lamp like giving off these like positive ions and absorbing the negative ones like they don't just exist waving around in the air as these different ions like they form molecules because they're unstable otherwise and so this idea is just utter crap. <laughs> Anyways, carry on. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So this, it gets it gets worse, actually. So ghosts have been linked by philosophers such as Eric Laszlo to super cool materials such as the Bose-Einstein condensate. Now, I'm not going to get into this because it's physics that I feel I don't have the capacity to explain very well. But basically, the Bose-Einstein condensate is a state of matter, which is, it, it's related to when you cool something to, to being very, very, very cold. So... Their idea is that even though this is something that only only happens when you call something to being very cold, because ghosts are made of negative energy, they're able to kind of manifest in this matter form. But that doesn't make any sense because if everything was that cold, then you know we'd be in, in danger. <laughs> um, 
because it's you know like um minus 273 degrees celsius it doesn't make any sense at all but they've also lifted concepts from quantum physics like the zero point energy state so this is the lowest possible energy state a quantum mechanical system might have again this applies to quantum systems it doesn't apply to like matter like you know people as a whole it's it's a misappropriation of the term um but this idea is like oh there's a zero point energy field that permeates everything and ghosts can manifest in this field um, it's a bit, essentially a jargonified version of ether, and Laszlo actually equates it to the Akashic field, so we can always see that there are some uh, New Age influences here. But yeah, they, they make broad sweeping statements about the nature of the fabric of reality without really paying any mind to how these theories work or what circumstances they work under, um, and they don't really provide very compelling or measurable evidence for ghosts. The zero-point energy is the place where particles that we can measure are no longer moving like that is that is what it means it's the temperature at which they they no longer move and so this idea that you could have something that's not even considered matter really be at a zero point energy is completely it's not even possible um because that you can only measure that on something that like has matter has like a weight and it ends i mean all of that and if a ghost is energy if we're talking about energy in the term of like light then it wouldn't have matter even a photon that's that's touchy territory but again that gets into quantum mechanics and we can't equate these two things together for so many reasons like i've touched on in previous episodes so that's interesting high and low energetic ghosts Wow. Yeah, I think it's just very conveniently non-provable because you can't really test these things very easily. The one final idea that I came came across, which I think was the most ridiculous and about saying something, is that positive ions would provide enough energy for our negative ghosts to manifest. But specifically, the positive ions come from our brains because neurotransmitters can have ions. But realistically, like we're going from quantum scale from the previous explanations to atomic scale, there's a big difference. Why does this happen specifically in the brain? Like lots of processes generate ions, like digesting glucose generates ions. Why wouldn't a ghost appear when we're just eating a chocolate bar? Well, Doesn't make any sense. Nerves all over your body, so like. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's it's just a weird thing to say. And also, they state that larger and more complex organisms have more ions, so they're more likely to manifest ghosts. But does that mean that like dinosaur ghosts are going to be? more prevalent because they're more, they're more cells like elephants are they seeing ghosts more often it just it just completely breaks down um but i i thought it was amusing enough to mention i i do want to mention so i found a paper and like i am not a math person at least not to this extent and so i won't attempt to explain it but it's titled low energy ghost and the genes instability and they essentially claim they show a massless canonical scalar field minimally coupled to general relativity can become a tachyonic ghost at low energies and i will link it in the description below if you are like a physicist or a math person please take a look at it and tell me if there's any kind of like realistic anything in this what appears to be mumbo jumbo jargon that makes no sense yeah okay do you want to move into Ghosts in the occult. Now you get to talk about necromancy with beans. Ah, oh, yeah. Okay. So necromancy. I I figure a lot of people listening will recognize that necromancy is not like the ooh, ooh scary summoning zombies and raising your dead lover back from the dead. That's not really what necromancy is. Necromancy is more or less divination by spirits generally a form of ceremonial magic there i guess there are kind of more like folk forms of necromancy but i don't know if that would really count necromancy is often like has evocation or invocation depending on what form of necromancy you're using and then usually it's paired with scrying and scrying usually is like into a mirror or like a bowl of water and you have smoke like from incense and you look at the smoke in the bowl of water or you have oil in the bowl of water and seeing the shapes that come up or the classic crystal ball. Although most people I find uh, actually really struggle with scrying into crystal balls. <laughs> I prefer other media. Necromancy too often was done during sleep in the ancient Greek world through a process called incubation, which was usually a form of invocation 
generally I would say invocation, I sorry, evocation, where you're sort of calling in often Apollo, or in some cases the ghost itself, into into you, and then you go to sleep, and then you experience sort of the ritual in your dream state. Now there were other forms of necromancy, like Pythagoras came up with the like his form of necromancy was called like soul projection, which is very similar to astral projection, except in the sense of like you had to enter a death-like state, uh, yeah, a death-like state, which is why dreams were accessible for necromancy because in a lot of ways the ancient Greeks linked dreams and death very closely. So you had to enter a, like a death-like state where you could project to the underworld. Pythagoras talked a lot about projecting to the underworld and just like he's like only the pure soul can talk to the gods so I guess pythagoras was one of those tiktok witches who was just astral projecting and talking about his experiences with gods yeah that's that's really necromancy in a nutshell what's what i find funny is a lot of the literature around necromancy so like from the classical era we don't actually have a lot of practical necromancy we mostly have literary necromancy which is not really a good example of how things were actually done because they were obviously dramatized but we do have the pgm from the hellenistic era which at least gives us a little more idea into how these things work but a lot of scholars kind of are stumped on how the actual like spear interaction took place because it's like do you do the ritual and you fall asleep in the middle of the ritual then wake up and complete it do you do the ritual complete it then sleep do you do the ritual sleep complete it in your dream there's not really a clear answer and I don't, yeah, I don't know if we'll get a clear answer, but if you've ever tried any of the necromancy spells from the PGM, please let me know because some of them are interesting, <laughs> especially the reanimation one. That one's fun. Well, except actually don't try that because you'd probably have to do very illegal things <laughs> to get your hands on the materials. <laughs> yeah, I found it interesting because this is like, I think the main intersection of ghosts and the occult. And it seems like there are a, a kind of a few reasons might, why you might do this. So one of them is like divination, as you mentioned. So this idea of ghosts being used for wisdom, and I guess it's the idea that because ghosts have passed on, they're able to access knowledge that you otherwise wouldn't be able to. There's also links to like ancestor knowledge. So particularly in ancient Greece, their ancestors were often revered. This is present across a lot of cultures, but the idea that your ancestors are then able to pass on useful knowledge or power to you. And then the final one is actually settling the restless dead, which I didn't realize. So this seems like if you have a pesky ghost, you would actually use necromancy to get rid of one. And I don't see that come up in the occult at all, really. I mean, maybe it's just where I'm looking. But um, I thought that was interesting how the perception of necromancy seems to have sort of changed subtly over time. Yeah, because you, you definitely have like reanimation spells in the Hellenistic, in the PGM specifically. But what's funny about those is it just seems like to be a long-winded form of divination like the people who wrote the spells in the pgm were like super dramatic really dramatic and i'm like what They're, yeah so a lot of things like reanimation honestly just seem to be a more dramatic form of that and like the only examples we really have of people like summoning ghosts for like malicious purposes would be literary although there are some fun coptic spells which are always really fun they're coptic coptic christian texts and one of them was actually using necromancy where you're trying to reanimate something to then curse your enemy and they're like invoking the angels in the name of god the early christians were super into necromancy which i find very funny <laughs> they were like really into i mean in some in some old grimoires there are like spells for you to like summon demons or angels that can like really wreak some mass havoc um, upon your intended target like that's still a thing and didn't like the greeks have cursed tablets where they did something mm -hmm. similar yeah the kata does not necromancy specifically but so the kata does might actually kind of like that they would be more like a folk form of necromancy the kata does might were specifically like lead tablets please don't bury lead in the ground <laughs> maybe that's why demeter Please looked at crops fail because <laughs> she was angry angry that they buried lead in the ground <clears throat> but you would write your curse usually addressed to ghosts or the furies like anything chthonic and they were kind of compelling the ghosts to carry out the the curse essentially and what's interesting is i forget who said it it's in one of my notes somewhere like this thought that the I don't Plutarch actually that the ghosts were more inclined to tell the truth than the gods because the ghosts don't have free will, which I thought was very interesting. You know that they had like the ghosts. It, he didn't use the term free will, but he basically was like the ghosts 
have to do what you say, whereas the gods do not. So the gods can lie to you, which I find kind of funny because that's almost like the opposite of like the trickster spirit question. <laughs> well, I thought it was funny because I think I was reading this book and they were saying that ghosts can lie to you, but this is why you would do this um this ritual with like the restless dead or with you would do a ritual with like reanimating something because then they would be compelled to answer your question because then you can set them to rest and they want to rest. So it's like you, you can hold something over them where you can't really hold something over a god, which I guess made logical sense. But yeah, I guess that's why you would go through this like huge ritual to um, reanimate something because then they're in the torture of like being bound in this horrible, rotting physical body. Yeah, that's the other thing with like ghosts in this time period is they are super super contradictory <laughs> artemidorus of daldus he said the dead always speak the truth in dreams because they have nothing to fear but when necromancers appear in dreams they never tell the truth belonging as they do to a group of cheating diviners such as pythagoreans cheese prophets civ prophets and lechnomancers did you say cheese prophets yep <laughs> Wait, we talked about this in, I think, our first episode. Yeah, I remember now. There's, like, a lot of contradictory ideas. Like, some of them are, like, ghosts can lie to you, ghosts can't lie to you. Necromancers can lie to you, though, because they're just as bad as Pythagoreans and cheese broth. <laughs> Quick question for you. Ancestor work, which is, I guess, sort of being trendified lately in some ways. Is that using ghosts? Like, is ancestor work ghosts, spirits? What do you think? I would define it in some ways as folk necromancy a lot of ways it's divination by spirits but i'm not sure if it's really ghosts if it's more just like the memory of a person i guess or like the idea of a person i like how you described that in the very beginning when you said there was like an impression i don't know if you could actually call it a full-on egregore but like the person leaves behind a kind of memory that then you access like through ancestor work to like help guide you along your path. That's, I think would probably be more of like an energetic model take on ancestor work versus like the spirit model specifically. I don't really think the ancestors are ghosts necessarily. Uh, I truly don't know. Um, (laughs) I don't think, I don't think it would fit my definition of ghost because I think a ghost has to be like, I wouldn't, and I didn't say physically manifest because that implies something testable, but like, an apparition i guess so probably no but i also don't do any ancestor work so maybe i'm wrong yeah i don't either so i couldn't tell you i will say if you ever find yourself in salem oftentimes they do ghost hunting up there the week before halloween and on the midnight between the 30th and the 31st when the veil is at its thinnest when the veil is at its thinnest they give you emf detectors and you get to just run around salem for two hours so if you ever find yourself in salem in late october I've never done it, but it sounds fun. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. Okay, field trip next year. We're going to plan it. Yes, field podcast. trip. Everyone come to Salem. <laughs> so Fel actually mentioned one of the kind of experiments or the tools that ghost hunters use to detect whether they're a ghost, which is EMS or GMS. So electromagnetic fields or geomagnetic fields. The rush, actually, what is the rationale behind this? Hanny, I think you looked this up specifically, didn't you? Oh, God, I don't know. Um <laughs> I did, yeah, I did look it up. I did look it up, but I, I truly don't think that there is a singular explanation for this. I think it's like it so bad, oh, you blocked it from your memory. Yeah, it's like oh, ghosts are negative energy, and therefore they would induce an energy change. Ghosts are high vibrational energy, and therefore they would be visible as like a spike in energy change. It's that same kind of rationale. Like that, there is the idea that they're these like etheric beings that because they're not detectable physically, you can detect them as an energy change. And therefore, the electromagnetic field is an extension of energy. And therefore, that is a detection of a ghost. But it yeah, it's very... Yeah, to my understanding, it's the this idea where you yourself have an electromagnetic field, which is not a thing, but bear with me. And that as you like interact with the ghost, it causes like changes, right? Or even just in the electromagnetic field of the environment. And so when you see any kind of fluctuation, that's what the EMF picks up, letting you know that there's something there that you can't physically, physically see. I did find a study that was done in 2001. It was done by Dr. Michael Persinger. I could be pronouncing that incorrectly. But his hypothesis was essentially that If paranormal events can be explained with neurophysiology, then we should be able to provoke them, to essentially make them happen, right? 
So in 2001, he did this with a device that's now known as the God Helmet. And he believed that paranormal experiences could be caused by the changes in these magnetic environments in which we live. So that electromagnetic field kind of uh, hypothesis. So he took a snowmobile helmet (laughs) with, and he added like solenoids to it that presumably altered the local magnetic fields. As So you like put it on your head and then the electromagnetic fields in your brain would be stimulated by this this field. He reported that at least 80% of participants felt a presence in the room while wearing the activated apparatus. But I do want to mention here that the electrical field stimulation that this helmet put forth was like a lot less than the stimulation that you might get from like an MRI machine that we use in modern day medicine. And like most people don't report paranormal experiences when they're getting an MRI. So like how accurate is it? I don't know. But what's what's even funnier is that he tried to prove this by actually inviting Richard Dawkins to his university. Um, And Dawkins was an atheist right at the time. And so he tried on this helmet and he reported not feeling any presence or effects when wearing it. No one has been able to replicate it since. So was it a hoax? I don't know. Maybe. Probably. Made up scientific data? Who knows? But yeah, so the scientific evidence for EMFs being accurate at all, as far as I could find, there is none. Yeah, a lot of it seems to be like, oh, we measured this like dip in EMF or like spike in EMF, etc. Because they, they just they just walk around a haunted house basically with this device that measures it and then they look at the readout. There are obviously like normal fluctuations and um, they, they're just kind of due to the uh, sensitivity of the equipment or... Um, they might just be kind of nat- like you know natural um, variation, or they might even be due to proximity to things like a microwave. <laughs> you know, somebody across the road puts a, like a hot pocket in or something like that. Um, I actually don't know what hot pocket is. I'm sorry. It's like very very small variations over the co- the course of milliseconds that are then equated to producing really large effects because the person also ex- says that they experience like a coldness at the time, which we've already talked about. But of course, there's no blinding in that. There's, it's very easy for somebody to maybe see the dip and then they get excited, etc. It's There's a lot of confounding in these kind of experiments. Yeah, that was actually a big critique of Christina's work was his lack of double-blind experiments um, and how there seemed to be a great deal of confirmation bias in a lot of his data. The other one is electronic recordings. So these you can find all over the internet. The uh, shows that Fel mentioned also uh, an idea of those, but those have, those have gone back to pretty much whenever we had recording. And the idea is that from the spiritualist movement, electronic recording, so this might be photography or audio, will strip somebody down to their aura or their essence. So I guess when you take a, take a photo of them, you're like taking a photo of their soul. I'm not, not really sure how that works. But either way, because ghosts are made of this, like whatever material your soul is made of, they can be captured with these techniques. And so um, in particular, there was a Latvian parapsychologist in the 1970s called Konstantin Radiv. And um, he basically wrote lots and lots and lots of audio recordings, partially from like crystals that were just set to like produce, like not tuned to anything, uh, like diode crystals, partly to white noise, partly just in empty rooms and claimed that he could hear voices and things like that. But I think you could argue that this is due to pareidolia because you can kind of make yourself hear things in um, just white noise, for example. Um, and controlled experiments have failed to produce any evidence that discarnate entities manifest themselves by electronic means. Well, and like when people do these in like the ghost shows and stuff, right? They're in an environment where like are looking for it and it's in like a highly charged environment. So they're more likely to, to hear something or take a, you know, blurb on the electronic device and put words to it where there aren't actually any ghost story time. Belle, I want to hear your ghost story. So my Gettysburg one is not that exciting, but I will say it was <laughs> it's quite scary at the time. So basically my brother went to school in Gettysburg, Gettysburg College, and we lived like several hours away and we left fairly late and Gettysburg is more centralish PA and it tends to have like really low service out there at least at the time that we were dropping him off and me and my sister dropped my brother off we left and it was starting to 
to get dark out. And you're like, we should have gotten, we should have left early. The GPS just kept fucking up, kept sending us in circles. And eventually it was just like pitch blackout. We're driving around in circles. Like we literally cannot get out of this goddamn city. And then suddenly we're driving down this huge long stretch and this fog just comes rolling in. And I look down at the phone and I go, Becky, we are... We're at the battlefield. We're at the Gettysburg battlefield. How did we get here? And this fog just like envelops the car. And I was like, I looked at her and I said, I swear to God, if this car dies, I'm just going to lose it. It's like one of those things where you're like, you don't believe ghosts or ghosts can harm you until it's like 11 p.m. pitch black fogs rolling in in the Gettysburg battlefield. I guess I'll share that one that is kind of explainable. I have sleep paralysis and uh, basically what that means if you don't know is that you will often wake up in the night and you might see a hallucination of something but you are not able to move and you get really terrified. So my sleep paralysis is it's pretty predictable like it's pretty much always shadow people and often I'll end up waking up several times like over and over again I'll see this shadow person but this time it was very different so I had just moved into a new flat in London and I think it was either a Victorian or Georgian building quite an old building and for reasons I won't get into I was sleeping on a mattress in the living room because I just moved in and I had an episode of sleep paralysis that was really really bad but instead of my usual shadow person Um, It was instead something that was very, very, very tangible, very visible. And it was a woman who was in like Georgian dress. And she was so, so, so angry that I was there. And it felt like it went on for hours. It was just so striking because it really felt like she was angry that I was in this place. The only thing that got me out of it was actually my cat who came and sat on my chest and woke me up. But it, it felt like very different to my normal sleep paralysis so it's definitely explainable but um i just thought it was interesting that obviously my, maybe my brain had come up with something that was quite specific to the area i don't really have like a lot of ghost stories i will say recently i started doing some work in my practice and i did have like a rather dark dream i was like in front of this cave i had been swallowed by the darkness of the cave and i remember it, it woke me up really suddenly and i was like I was terrified. Like, I woke up really frightened. And at the edge of my bed, I saw this figure cloaked. It wasn't a shadow person because, like, I could tell there were, there were like, details of the individual. But they were cloaked and they were carrying a staff. And I about shit my pants. <laughs> I, like, jumped out of bed and I ran. I, like, first had to catch my breath because I was, like, hyperventilating. And then I ran to my door to like make sure everything was locked and I couldn't go to sleep the rest of the night. I don't know if it was a ghost. I think I know, I personally believe it was a specific spirit. Scared the bejeebies out of me and I don't ever want it to happen again. That's my only ghost story though. I really haven't had very many paranormal experiences. One more from me is from my workplace. I'm not going to share where I work because it's very specific location. (laughs) Immediately puts me on a map. But let's just say it's like an old colonial site and the guy who like cleans the site, he like would share ghost stories and even so we have like an old crypt and we have to open it every now and again. And like my coworker came up the other day and was like, there's someone down there. And I was like, great, wonderful, thanks. The guy who cleans out the crypt and the site in general, he actually opened up a couple like a couple days ago to actually share the story that had only been like worker legend for a while. This guy's like super not like no nonsense, like ex-military. He's very like no nonsense. This is how it's going to be. Here is what he had to say. So in the first few first year of me working here, being the caretaker, I vacuum and clean at all hours. So sometimes if I can't get to it in the afternoon, I will come back at midnight and do it then. It can be a little spooky and creaky in there. One night, I saw what looked like two beings in the upper gallery just watching me. I don't know how to explain it. I wanted to run out the back door. I wasn't touched and nobody said anything, but I saw something that I was fairly certain was real. And I said, you guys aren't supposed to be in here. And they had no reaction. So I made my way to the back and I turned to see if, if I was seeing what I thought I was seeing. And they had pivoted and they were still watching me as I made my way out. As I was leaving and putting the vacuum away, I just said, listen, I'm not here to do anything except to keep this place neat and orderly. That's it. I mean, you no harm. I just made my peace with whatever was in there. 
now they they're just not showing themselves anymore and they're comfortable with me i feel weird saying that but that's what i saw and it freaked me out i love the idea of he's like you're not supposed to be here <laughs> it's a power just to, just to say that to some ghosts i personally have had no ghost experiences at the place that i work mostly because it's a heavily touristed site so i don't think i would ever have any and the only thing that like any spooky story that like my coworkers experience usually when we're opening the crypts and it's like there's someone in there <laughs> if you have any ghost stories be sure to share them with us either in the discord or on our instagram or you can you can send a message to any of us and we'll share it amongst ourselves and have a good laugh or 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 a scare fright i don't know <laughs> I, have, I have one more really really nice one oh, which yeah. is probably, ahead, probably not true because I was only like six years old and I have some horrible ones as well but this this is nice when I I mentioned I had sleep paralysis my entire life and so I used to wake up in the night a lot when I was about six with night terrors and this time I'd woken up and I'd been awake for a while so like I was fully conscious I was able to move and I kind of went down to lie back to sleep came back to sleep and I could feel something on the end of my bed I was like that's weird and I sat up and I saw this small figure sitting on the end of my bed. She was holding something as so it was a woman. She was holding something out to me. And I looked over and it was a Terry's chocolate orange. <laughs> and I realized I looked up at the face of this being that was sitting on the end of my bed. So they were kind of ghostly, like you'd expect, like white and almost translucent. So you couldn't, I couldn't see all of the details. But it was my great grandma. And um, she had passed away a couple of years before. And one specific memory I really have of her is that I used to sit on her lap and she used to eat Terry's chocolate orange with me. So I, I thought that was like her way of coming to comfort me after I'd had a night of night terrors. Maybe it wasn't a ghost, but I think it was really cute anyway. <laughs> that's super sweet. I love that. I think that's all we have and we are way over time. So we will call it. <laughs> this will come out on Halloween. So happy Halloween to everybody listening. Um, I hope your night is filled with lots of fun and terror if you're into that. But we will see you next week. Have a great night. Be safe and enjoy all of the candy. Bye, everybody. 